Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Wild and Exposed podcast. Tonight is the Stranger Danger edition of Wild and Exposed. We've got a voice that will be familiar to you uh, that will be coming on. But first, before we introduce our guest, Jason, how are things doing in Utah? Uh, it's going really good. Going really good. Been actually been able to get out and get, do a little bit of shooting. Um, went out and chased some velvet bulls and uh, had some fun with that. And uh, things are going good. That wasn't in Utah, though, right? No, that wasn't. That was a little cross the border trip. I went over to Colorado and and uh, had some fun over there. So me and excellent. I drug I drug my boy with me, Hunter, again. So we had a little father son adventure. It was pretty fun. So good deal. And Michael, yeah. how about Colorado? It's hot. I'm, I know you guys are still hot. It's crazy hot, but they're calling for big time thunderstorms tonight, which would cool it off. But it, looking out the window, it does not look like it's going to happen. Hey, guess what it was again here today? You were you in the seventies? Well, for a while, it did get up to <laughs> it did get up to eighty, but we're low eighties. It's only eighty-two, down from a hundred. So that was excellent. And for you Canadian listeners, I have no idea what the temperature is. It's about thirty-four, right? Maybe I don't know. We'll ask our guest. Yeah, when he when he comes on. So I've got a lot of stuff to talk about, but I thought we could just talk about it in the podcast just because it's a catch-up show, kind of, and then we'll kinda. obviously have our guests going on too. So um, I'll just wait to fill everybody in on some new camera stuff. So this guest, is he's a loquacious, verbosious <laughs> individual, and he's having trouble biting his tongue right now. <laughs> so... I think we probably should go ahead and introduce him before he falls out of his chair and, and kind of goes crazy. Hey, guys, well, thanks very much for having me on, boys. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And I just was wondering, Ron, hey, sir, if you could tell me what those words mean. Which words? Loquacious? Verbose. Verbose? Means talkative. Well, thank you then. Thank you again for having me on your podcast here today. <laughs> All right, so as you can hear, we've got a Canadian on the podcast, and uh, Mark Raycroft, welcome back to Wild and Exposed. It has been way too long, brothers. It has. Great to see your handsome faces. Makes my day. Yeah, it's just like old times. Except... I want want to sing a little song. Oh. But I don't. So do I. (laughs) so happy birthday yours isn't allowed no that was not allowed no we're not we're not going there well you can if you want i it's not my place to say i was gonna sing welcome back i can't get it i had it all afternoon that's not it no i know so mark what what have you been up to i've been hunkering down getting things looked after everything as predictable as every other year this year right this spring this summer oh yeah it's been exactly the same as every other year been on the property, haven't left. Everything seems normal. <laughs> Only not. No. What a year. 
it's been good. It's been good. Super strange. And, and as you know, it's unpredictable as everybody out there is experiencing across the board. Who knows? Right. It seemed like a big deal when, uh, here, I'm going to throw something else out there. Like when Pearl Jam canceled their tour in March, it's like, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> How did they know? Like a week later, everything's shutting down. But it's been a strange year. Time to catch up on things. Time to reflect. And missed you guys. Missed the show. Lots of thought processing. And, you know, I saw something recently. And Michael and I were talking a bit this afternoon. So he's going to not necessarily want to hear this again. But I saw a Charlie Brown comic strip. And I've been loving the memes this year. I try to keep the energy up with my friends and loved ones by sending them the humorous memes that I find on on Facebook and stuff out there. And Charlie Brown and Snoopy are sitting at the end of this dock. And Charlie Brown says, you only live once. And Snoopy says, correction, you only die once. You live every day. Yep. And so, guys. Even with today's, yeah, Exactly. Well, I make the most of the present, right? Still I mean, still have opportunities. Yep. We're all sure. healthy. We hope that continues. Our loved ones are healthy. We're hoping things things improve here in Canada. Interprovincial borders are opening up. Travel is opening up slowly. So I hope that continues. I have some plans for this fall. Was hoping to do some U.S. trips as well. Those are big question marks at the moment. But I know you guys have some definite opportunity to travel as you have been doing, which is awesome. But it's. Well, it's hard not enough, I can assure you. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't get yeah. to talk to Canadians very much just on this podcast. And then I don't know how many people out there in our listening audience get to talk to Canadians. What's it like up there? I mean, you guys probably get a lot of the U.S. news and kind of know what kind of a crapshoot we're dealing with down here. What's it like up there? I I'm think just, you guys have I'm it more under, under it. control. I'm just going to say it's a complete shit show in the United States. <laughs> Whoa, whoa. We try to keep it family friendly, but there there are a lot of different variables too, though, right? You're talking about you have 330 million people in that space, whereas Canada has 33 million people, right? So there's there's those things. It's more of a congested population, and there are other variables potentially at play too. I mean, it was quite concerning in the spring because it just kept ratcheting up, ratcheting up and the deaths as well as hospitalizations. But it's been better the past month and that's what's caused different areas to open up again. And everything's, I mean, there's still the social distancing. Uh, there's laws in place that you have to wear a mask if you go inside a building. Outdoors, it's not mandatory as long as you're the two meters or six feet apart from the nearest person unless they're in your bubble you guys are in my digital bubble <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know and part of it this spring so as as i've heard i've been listening to the podcast all along been loving it and heard more and more content about you know aside from having the great guests that you guys have had about what you can do during these times closer to home and it's been the same story here for the longest time it's probably six weeks maybe even two months that we couldn't go anywhere. But then the parks and wilderness areas opened up and back country. So I've been doing more of that back uh, two to three hours north of me, depending on which access point is Algonquin Park. And it's an iconic park here in Ontario with lots of wildlife and wilderness access, especially on, on waterways. So a couple of friends and I, we hop in the canoes and 
and take off for three or four days at a time into the back country. So that's been really good because it's detaches from all the stress. And like you said, Michael, I mean, we're watching the news every day. I mean, who's not as, as hard as some of that is and definitely dialed into all the U S issues as well. You're our neighbors, love you guys. And, and, you know, hoping everything for the best. And like I said, I mean, I've, I want to be in Alaska. The last two years I was in Alaska now, right? And then September, Alaska, please. Other places we want to travel to. So hopefully things recover sooner than later. Yeah, I don't have high hopes for that, but. I honestly was not even talking about COVID. Here's how we can change the subject. So, Mark, you said something about Algonquin. And you have yes, started Mark. a new Instagram page. Or nice Instagram uh, account, I guess is the proper term for that. Yeah. Tell us about that and what you're doing. I don't think you're limited on how many Instagram pages you have. It's more of what you want to run, right? And the time involved. And it's still, I mean, my main page is where my heart and soul and main contributions go. But it was something that with the time to reflect this spring and just because of the time I was spending at Algonquin Park, and not knowing how long this craziness is going to go on, um, this all, all of these serious restrictions and, and potential health, well, health concerns that are serious that way is doing things closer to home. And so I started this page at Adventure Algonquin. And I, you know, I wasn't, I thought about it and I, I went on Instagram and, you know, it took us a month in the beginning of Wild and Exposed, if not longer, to come up with a name. You know, we'd, we'd talk on the phone and, and it'd be like, we come up with a name that we all loved and as soon as you search it, it's gone or some some part of it's gone somewhere. It's so hard to find something that is catchy and ties into the content so well. This one, I, I don't know why, I just did the search and Adventure Algonquin was still there. There's all kinds of people and outfitters that offer tours in Algonquin Park because the greater Toronto area has got five, six million people and a lot of people aren't comfortable doing this on their own whether it's just a canoe trip, whether it's wildlife, nature photography, whether it's a fishing trip, going into the interior in a canoe where wild animals are in various weather conditions and in a canoe is something that a lot of people would like to be helped with, if not the first time, maybe many times. So when I came up and searched Adventure Algonquin, it was totally out there. And I'm like, holy cow, I've got to grab this. But then I looked at it, and this is the cool factor, Adventure Algonquin, when you put the two words together, real is in the middle, and it just stands out. It just glared at me. Adventure, real Algonquin, right? So when I was back in school five or six years ago, and <laughs> and I was doing my weekends up in Algonquin when right. I could in the truck and, and photographing moose and other wildlife, foxes and bears and um, Pine Martins weren't as prevalent as they are now. A great place for those, as Instagram has revealed. I spent so much time there, but hadn't been there a lot over the past. I'm going to make a liar to myself now because I said five or six years since I was in school. Right. So, over the last 20 years. Two or three months. Two or three months, yeah. plus or minus. Yeah. yeah. Because there's so many other places in North America that had captured my heart and were traveling to and just incredible experiences to be had across our continent and further abroad now too that I didn't get there as often as I would like so this spring allowed for that and this Instagram page was a way to feature this location and 
and part of it too is as a as a businessman and in wildlife photography this profession as a lot of professions especially this year are in flux you know what's happening there's a lot of things being pulled back a lot of unfortunately rate reductions there's a lot of um, image purchase quantity reductions, art budgets are going down, advertising is going down. We all in the industry, uh, the editing side, the photography side, the writing side, everybody hopes this recovers, but nobody knows for sure what's happening. So I felt it was smart to have various irons in the fire long term. So whether this is just a page that continues to fuel my time in Algonquin, along with my my good friend Bill Bill Gadzos, who I do these trips with very frequently, if not all the time he's with me. He's great at mapping it out and great company and he's his backcountry skills are pretty mad. So and then a young fellow Justin who comes with us. So we do this stuff together and it's been a great unplug. You know, after four days in the backcountry we come out and just it's stress levels are way down. We've had some fun experiences. We've had laughs. It's just super nice to sit by a campfire with just a few people watch the sunset over the lake, hear the loons and, and chill, you know, tell some stories, sleep in a tent. I have a story. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole quickly, but our first trip this spring, if, if Not I that we haven't already. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. All he asked you. was the Instagram page, right? <laughs> no, I didn't oh, mean a, you, but this go is ahead. one of my, one of my closest bear encounters I've had. I mean, photographed hundreds and hundreds of bears over over the years black bears and grizzlies and in algonquin park being in ontario they're all black bears obviously and it's mating season we were the first people in they opened the back country on june 1st normally we would go in mid-may as soon as the ice is out for trout fishing and just to get in and have the experience ice so june 1st they opened we went in june 1st so nobody had been in there since last fall and it was about a five, six hour canoe trip in a couple of portages, great campsite, beautiful view, great fishing. As I said, great company. Andrew, my son, uh, was with me on this trip. So he and I were in a tent together and, and Tyler was, uh, along too. And, and Tyler was the, the fellow who came to Alaska, did the wild and exposed vlogs with us, Ron and that on, on that trip, yep. fantastic job. And yep. so, you know, he's still in the fold. And got to connect and have some nice time with him this spring, too. But we're sleeping 2 a.m. The rain's coming down a bit on the tent. Not super loud. I'm asleep. And it wakes me up in the rain. I hear these footsteps, like, right beside my head. And I'm like, okay, did I imagine that? And no, I hear again. Oof, oof, oof. Like, it sounded like six inches from my head. So... I had spray, bear spray, because we're so far in the interior, and just as a deterrent. If some, there's times that you get a young adolescent bear that's just mischievous and have a reason, easy enough to deter it out of camp if necessary. As um, so, I had the spray, but the tent's closed, and I don't want to open the fly because I don't want to startle the bear. But years ago, I was filming bears on a on a privately owned piece of land in Minnesota, and for fun. I thought, you know, a great interactive picture, I don't know if it ever sold, would be to set up a tent for a campsite, make a fake campsite and have a bear go through. There were so many bears in this area. So I set up this, I brought an old tent that I didn't care what happened to it. I set it up and within five minutes, one of the biggest boars came out of the bush, 
walked over the tent and just stepped on it and flattened it. <laughs> so it was good for pictures, but this is going through my head while I'm sitting there in this dark tent with the bear right outside. I'm like, don't be too curious, buddy, because I can't spray you with the tent closed. So thankfully it went away, but it was, you all know, because of your experience with bears in the spring, you know how the boars walk with pushing their front pads in. <laughs> I could hear that going away, like five, six, seven steps. When in the middle of this, Andrew wakes up and he's, you know, two feet to my left. And he's looking at me like, what the heck's going on, dad? Why are you sitting up with a bear spray in your hand? <laughs> So I didn't want to freak him out, but I didn't want him to be unaware either, because if it did step on the tent, we would have to open the fly quickly, get outside, and and try to scare it off. So you never got so, to see the bear. You just knew, you just heard it, and so you never yeah, got to see right. if it was a great big I mean, bear or a little bear. Or... I think it was a big male from the weight it sounded of the steps, you know, and it just was that time where they're starting to roam. And so, yeah, yeah, I could be held to some question because i didn't lay eyes on it but just all my years of being around them and it really it was so close but how did you so i guess a, my big question is how did you go back to sleep knowing that you know you could just come back an hour later you know i was awake for probably 45 minutes but from all of our experience filming and, and together guys too you know that usually those boars are on a big walkabout you know they can do 10 miles a day or more um, sometimes far more we've seen them do. We picked them up the next day a long way off. They're looking for love. So my hope was that, you know, there was nothing in our campsite to keep him. And if there was, I would have heard it in the next 10 minutes if he was into something. We take food barrels in and hang them from the tree, suspend them up. And so nothing happened. No, nothing was disturbed. And so after a bit, I figured he'd gone on. I just assumed that. And it's like everything else in life. I go back to that Charlie Brown thing, you know. You only die once, but you live every day. If it's going to happen, it'll be bad news. It's going to happen, but I've got to get back to sleep. And he's probably gone, right? Got to get back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's gone. It was a while. I, sl- I And I slept the rest of the night just fine. It was it was a, a neat, sorry, Ron, a neat berm we were on between the lake and a big bog. So I think it was a travel corridor. There was moose droppings all over from the wintertime because it was exposed along the shore that I could see where they'd get sun and be warm. But um, anyway, no, no tracks outside the tent. Well, it's, it's just it was just um, like grant. There was the oh, type no, of soil, no, the wrong type of soil for tracks. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't okay. see it in there. Yeah. So. Hey, I got to deviate just real quickly off of your story because Jason had something, and it uh, kind of correlates with the you were saying a bear can walk 10, 15, 20 miles a day, right? So Jason was photographing bull elk the other day and we had heard about this bull or he and harlan cooper a good friend of the podcast had heard about this bull and everybody's kind of queued up to this location where we heard he was last at right and then jason fill in the story from there yeah so so harlan spent a whole evening looking for this this big bull and never could find him look high low everywhere went you know within probably three, four mile radius of this area looking for this bull and never could find, turn him up. So the next morning is when my, my boy and hunt, my boy and I showed up and we, we went right through the area where this bull was and went to a different area looking for some different elk. And guess who was up there on the mountain where we were looking? This bull that Harden was looking for. And the cool thing about this is this is literally 18 miles 
<laughs> from where he was spotted the evening before. No so, way. yeah, this I mean, time of year. This wow. time of year. So he was he was definitely on the move and was looking for something specific. And we we had that encounter with him, and he gave us a great morning. And then we looked for him that evening and couldn't turn him up again. So he disappeared on us. And then I think he showed back up again, but uh, not not while I was there. But yeah, pretty impressive that they can travel that far, and they will. They'll, and it's nothing for them when you think about it. But to that to us, that seems like a big deal. But to them, it's probably nothing, you know. But how cool would it be? You know that bull probably does the same thing every year, right? It's like, oh, the switch turns, and he's like, uh, I'm going to leave this low country because it's getting kind of hot. Or there's better right. stuff to eat up high. And then all of a sudden, it's just like during the rut. You know, I've seen bull moose in Denali go 20, 30 miles in a day just on a whim, right? So yep. it's just kind of a cool. We heard that other story too, Mark, about that bear in, in uh, Jasper that – what was it, a grizzly bear? Or a... Yeah, they had just put uh, radio collars for research on 10 or 12 grizzlies there in that big national park. And we heard through the grapevine it was pretty crazy that this boar had gone up over a snow-capped mountain that day and then back again. Oh, so, wow. you know, what, what curiosity or what reason would it have to go up over a snow-capped mountain and back? So... Yes. Yeah, see made, what's on made, the other side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there it couldn't is. Help, <laughs> couldn't help himself. Our good friend Harlan Cooper, we were talking with him the other day, and he's like, you need to give us a little bit more information about locations. So this is a good opportunity. Algonquin's cool. I've heard a lot about Algonquin, but how big is that park? And what's the best way for people to, to experience the park? Maybe the best months, the best... You know, what would you do? Fly into Toronto, rent a car and go? Or how does that work? Definitely Toronto is the closest international airport, easiest access. You would fly into Toronto, rent a car and drive. Oh, there come my decks. Turn the phone back on. Um, <laughs> three hours north. Very accessible, great highway system. No problem at all. What I would recommend, and it depends on the time of year, it is a very busy park. So things get booked up, especially during the summer months. So if one was planning to do it in the summertime, make sure the accommodations and everything is is booked ahead of the trip. It's easier through fall and winter. And for wildlife photographers, honestly, lean for fall and winter. The fall foliage in Algonquin Park is one of the best places on planet Earth to experience it. If you time it during that 10-day, 10, 10 two-week window, it's just breathtaking. Lots of hiking trails for great vistas and landscape opportunities. So the dew fall color would be a good time. It's busy then because a lot of people from the greater Toronto area do go for that reason. There are bus tours and stuff. But like every other national park, a lot of those are just this one main highway that goes through the park. So a lot of the traffic's there. When you get off the road, it quiets down significantly. But if it's through the summer months, you'd want to book your campsite ahead of time. It's all done online through Ontario Parks. Super easy to do. But it is very easily accessed. And people from all over the world come there. You know, it's interesting because we have so many in the United States and Canada, so many famous national parks that are all worth seeing. You know, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Denali. They've got Banff and Jasper and the Rocky and the Icefields Parkway through Alberta. That's a must do. You know, the California coast with the sequoias, the BC, there's so much to see. Um, Algonquin Park, 
for a provincial park gets a lot of attraction, a lot of attention, a lot of traffic. The, there have been fluctuations in population densities of wildlife over the years. When I started wildlife photography, there were a ton of moose, one of the best places for eastern moose. And they went down for a long time for a variety of reasons. Winter moose tick was a big contributor to that. And, you know, winter lasting into spring and them dying of hypothermia, hypothermia knockback populations. But they've rebounded now. They're doing well this year. So moose sightings are up. Um, loons, practically every lake in Algonquin Park is just dotted with, with waterways. So for the adventurous sort, there are uh, operations that offer guided uh, excursions, whether it's a day trip, whether it's a multi-day trip. There are also various outlets that rent canoes, rent uh, food barrels, various things, and can get people up to speed on that if they're comfortable doing that kind of adventure on their own. The maps are very well labeled. The portages from lake to lake are, uh, for the most part, exceptionally well labeled. So it can be a really great adventure. And honestly, the, it's just a beautiful uh, Canadian Shield, rocky, white pine, uh, hardwood, forests as well. It's, it's a great landscape. It's not as dramatic as you get in the Rockies or in, you know, Utah, right? But Utah is just spectacular where Jason lives, but it's it's a beautiful landscape and is accessible. And, you know, it's one of the things, social media, you can easily find all kinds of content that's coming out of there just by searching the hashtag Algonquin Park. Or, an idea. or Adventure Algonquin. Well, even better. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So I just looked. It's 1.89 million acres, which is freaking huge, right? I mean, you look at Yellowstone mm -hmm. as, what, 2 million acres. And you said there's only one road that goes through that park? There's one primary highway that cuts across the southern half of the park, Highway 60, from east to west or west to east, depending where you're, well, be west to east from Toronto. And there are other access points. Uh, our next trip, we're going way around to the top, so it'll be a five-hour drive, and we're going to go in at a place called Brent to Cedar Lake and then go in another portage from there to another lake to camp on. Those places are far quiet, quieter than this Highway 60 corridor. But for the first trip and for fall foliage um, and to cover ground to spot animals like moose, the Highway 60 corridor is great. It's also good for foxes. There are loons in the waterways near there and, and pine martens in that region too. But if you want to do the canoe thing, you would, you kind of need some experience doing that, right? I mean, that's not something that some greenhorn would just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a canoe and we're going to do what? Like, how far is an actual canoe trip? I guess as long as you want it to be, but you could probably go for miles and miles and miles if you wanted to, right? Yeah, I definitely recommend experience. And if you don't have experience, then you it's, would want a guide for all the safety reasons. Uh, wilderness guides have all their... Wilderness um, first aid safety stuff, you know, they also have an in-reach so they can contact in the case of emergency. Waterways, um, the lakes and waterways are all different sizes. Canoes are all different as well. Different types of canoes, as size, uh, weight for portaging is, is important and stability is another thing. So, and then your gear. These places that offer trips, you know, and it's something we may do when COVID settles down. We'll see, but offer the gear where you have a dry bag. That's important. And then, you know, you, you clip it into your canoe so that if the canoe, if you go in the drink, the bag still stays with the canoe and everything stays dry. You know, there are people who 
haven't planned that far ahead who just tie things in garbage bags or just a regular backpack and you know they have to be prepared for it to get wet if that's the case not that falling out of a canoe is a common occurrence but it can happen and you have to be prepared and same with a life jacket you have to have all those things canoeing itself is a skill that i have not mastered and and continue to learn our friend sean james who was on the podcast he's an exceptional canoeist and i've got to meet him up there one of these days soon and hope to learn from him on some of that but each trip we get a little better a little more better technique but andrew you know andrew and i had a close call this spring and a lot of things in wilderness live and learn right we we approach it with practical common sense frame of mind and think after 20 years that you know i'm a safe guy i i, I can do all this and not to put a slant on on adventure algonquin but we crossed a big lake right after ice out and the wind picked up and i'm not going to do that again in these the canoes that we're using i'll do the shore i'll pitch a tent stay in another day that was a live and learn one-time experience we made it across everybody did but that's no fun to me but there you know there are canoes people um that i know of that have done grand adventures tim Irvin. Uh, for instance, uh, up up in the Yukon, I guess what, I can't remember the river he went on, but there are canoes that you can put a tarp over that fasten down. So the, I mean, there are people who go through whitewater. All different boat systems, depending on how you're set up. So if they're going to do a canoe, then definitely they need to learn how to be in a canoe. So what are the photographic opportunities out of a canoe? Are you able to like? Are you do you have your camera out when you're on the edge of a lake and you know it's not big chances of turning over or falling in the drink i mean is there an opportunity to sneak up on a not sneak up but you know float up onto a moose and get some cool pictures or loons or whatever or is it more just a get from point a to point b that's uh, that's definitely an opportunity and that's how a lot of it's done there are there are moose you can walk up to on hiking trails which are all over algonquin park there are open areas hydro line stuff where you'll see moose there are ponds roadside um, water ditches and stuff where the moose pop out but a lot of it is done from canoe and you can it all depends on what you're what you're planning to do if if you're going a long way so when we do a five or six hour trip in i usually don't have a camera out because we're on a mission but that's something that i'm researching i thought at some point we might get into in today's podcast but is i had a system for this and now i don't i just have the two to five hundred on the 850 and because of the backpacks, there's all the portaging. You try to pack very efficiently so you don't, if you've got a three, let's say you've got a two mile portage, you don't want to have to do it twice, ideally, because that, you know, you do it three times to do it twice because you got to come back and then back again. So we, we have really fine tuned the gear we take, but to take the two to five means its own case because of the length of the lens, another backpack. And I have a big backpack on, my arms are full. I'd have to put a front pack on, then I'm going to trip over this over the deadfalls or the anything slipping. So I used to have the Nikon 80 to 400, the first generation, don't touch it from, I had that. The second generation was very good. I sold it to my sweetheart friend, Debbie Brewer, and it's gone. That fit in the fanny pack, which would go in front on the camera. And that would be great, enough stabilization for water shooting from a canoe. Since I hadn't done that in a number of years, I don't have a current setup, so I've been researching it. Michelle Valberg is somebody I know who shoots Nikon mirrorless, and I was communicating with her last week. There's so much going on, guys. It's dizzying. With, with It's so exciting, but I don't know 
I want to sprint in like three directions for this gear, the three different companies, but there's no perfect setup today. And it's just, um, but she, she has, she said the Nikon, now here, here we're going to go. We'll have a bit of an arm wrestle here. Z6. Yep. Z. Yep. Got it. Z. Z. Z6. Z6. All right. The Nikon Z or Z6 on the 500 millimeter PF lens. She can put a two times extender on that, making a thousand and shoot 4K video and love it. Handheld. Handheld. Because it's a small lens, because there's an image stabilizer in the lens and the camera body, it works. And you know, I'm, I, she's a phenomenal photographer. You can find her on Instagram. She's a Nikon ambassador. I don't doubt what she's saying for a moment, but it harkens back to me like when we bailed on the tripod. You know, the first time I shot without the tripod with the two to 400 Nikon, it was almost like a mistake to realize it, it could nail the shots. And then I forgot the tripod. And then for years, Various friends are like, what are you doing, man? And, and anyway, uh, Don Kessler used to say to me in the field, a good friend of mine from Alberta, he said, no, no tripod, no shots, Mark. No tripod, no shots. Every time he saw me walking by him, it was a great laugh all the time. Love you, Don. But it's it, it could do it. And it's the same kind of transition right now. The whole idea of shooting video without a gimbal with just a camera body and lens seems hard to believe that it'd be that good. But that's what I'm searching for. I'm searching for a new mirrorless camera setup that's small enough to fit in a pack that I can carry on my front in the canoe. So it's not exposed. It's not rolling around in the canoe. I don't have to reach for it. And I can handhold to do stills or video. The 80 to 400, I could put it on the 850 and I could do stills with confidence. But I want to have YouTube content. So I want to be able to do both video and stills. So that's where I'm at. The R5... I'm pretty excited. I mean, I've had Nikon my whole life. I'm pretty excited about that and the specs. The one thing about the Z6 that holds me back is it's a 24 megapixel sensor. I love the 45 megapixel sensor on the 850 because back in the day when I was on Wild and Exposed podcast, <laughs> I pointed out the revelation I could take a take a horizontal frame, crop it vertical, and still have a bigger file that would work on a magazine cover. So you have so much play post-production with that size of sensor. So I don't want to go back to a 24 megapixel sensor if I'm shooting stills as well, if I don't have to. So the R5 at 45 megapixel fits that. Anyway, well, before before we go back or we'll go over to Canon, maybe the other two Nikon shooters in the room here ought to give us a little uh, thought process on what Mark was just saying. Have you guys, I just saw it today. I just saw on Instagram something about that Z6 coming out. So that's just like what? No, the Z6 has been out. Oh, what's the one that just came out? out? uh, Z5. And they think that it's going to be a precursor to a Z8, which would be more in line with uh, the D850 in a a mirrorless body. Now, if that happens, it's going to have to be pretty special. Canon, for the longest time, and this is why I switched to Nikon, to be honest with you. But they would do these incremental improvements, and it would be, you know, four megapixels, and that was it. You didn't get anything else out of the camera. You didn't get anything else out of the sensor. Um, and that's what kind of frustrated me because the the Nikon D850 made this huge jump. And if you look at the R5 right now, I you know, I think there are still some things that are, 
yet to be determined. I, on paper, it's it's a miracle of modern technology that they crammed all of that into a mirrorless body. Um, but I think you know there are some things with the heat. There's some limitations if you're filming in you know 8K, which it has the ability to do. If you're filming in 8K, you have about 19 minutes before you hit that overheat. Uh, temperature in body and that's you know at room temperature so if we're filming out in the winter time obviously we're probably going to get more time with that uh, or more time out of that but that is a, a potential limitation if you're filming it's got the ability to film 4k at 120p which is you know that nice buttery smooth slow motion that you like and that mike you've been able to do you know even more even more than that with your uh, red camera. So to be able to do all those things with just a mirrorless camera, plus have a 45 megapixel sensor to capture stills with. And the other thing about this camera is it's got in-body image stabilization. So you combine that with image stabilization in your lens and you have up to eight stops of image stabilization. So you can do a lot of handheld video and even some B-roll shots, you know, hiking through the woods or whatever, uh, with that camera not on a tripod. Tripod. Or a gimbal. I've never said it like that before. <laughs> or a tripod. <laughs> yeah, a gimbal. I mean, a, with a gimbal, you're gonna, it's going to be, you know, almost like filming with the Hyper Smooth on the, on the GoPro Hero 8 or the DJI, you know the action cams. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to this new technology. Then you look at stinking Sony, they finally come out and say, yep, we're going to release the, the a seven S three, which is basically the, the biggest limiting factor to that is 12 megapixel sensor. And they've basically said it's not a still image camera. This is a, a video camera and a still image cameras, body Close. you know it's basically in a in a mirrorless body but it is a video camera and it's it's awesome for video the um i think they're going to have 4k 120 that hasn't been confirmed yet um but that 12 megapixel sensor you hear that and you think you know there's no way but what that does for your ability to utilize low light and to film in low light uh, without cramming all those pixels on the sensor and causing more noise or without more heat on the sensor causing more noise, uh, you know, that's a, it's a big advantage. So if you're a A9 shooter and you wanted a video system as well, this would be a great option and you still have a, a pretty light kit. I think the limitation that Canon and um, Sony both have is that I don't, you know, I, I'm flabbergasted that those two big companies can't do what Nikon has done with the lens technology and come out with the 500 PF, which is a 5.6 all the way through. And the rumor is, and I don't know how reliable this source is because I've only met the guy once, but um, his, his friend works for Nikon and they are testing a 700 PF, which is not going to be a lot bigger than the 500 PF. And uh, it's a 5.6 throughout. So why can't Canon and Sony come out with that 
same lens technology. I mean, I don't know why they don't share. Nikon already uses Sony's sensor. So why not share some of that lens technology as a, as a payback? But I, there's, like you said, Mark, there's so many things going on right now that it's just like, what do I do? And I think the answer for me is I thought I knew. I thought I was going to jump, you know, right out of the starting blocks, be back to Canon. But I think the answer is I'm going to wait a month and, and wait until I talk to some people who have reviewed these systems and, and just kind of wait and see. But the, the lightweight system or the lightweight potential that we have, I think is tremendous. Unfortunately, the, some of the lenses that Canon's come out with this 800, uh, that fits on their mirrorless system. It's an R mount lens, but the stinking thing is the F11, which is not even practical, um, for me. It, it maybe is for somebody who's just going on a trip and they want that long lens option. It would be a cheap rental for them to take with and, and be able to have some reach. But for, from an artistic standpoint, and we've kind of, we talked about this before, Jason and, and Michael and I on the, I think it was the last podcast, wasn't it? Um, just that F11 doesn't give you the opportunity to separate your subject from background. And there's just a lot of limitations there. And even the 100 to 500, it sounds like a great lens, but on the 500 end, the, you know, the smallest, the aperture, the smallest aperture you have is what? Seven one, mm-hmm. I think. So there's still, the camera's great. And I think if you, if you adapt it and still use like Michael's got that 200 to 400 with the built-in five, six, I think that's still a great option, but it's adapted to the system. And then you're not really losing the weight. You're still carrying a little bit more weight, but that's a great lens. It doesn't get any sharper than that. But I saw, I don't know, some people like him, some people don't. That Frodo's photo, I saw some images that he did just as a test for the Animal AF in the R5. Man. And the he goes through, you know, kind of the technique he was using. He was holding it out away from him. He had the Atomos Ninja on there so that he could film the, the viewfinder of the camera. And he's holding it out away from his body so he can watch that. And at one three twentieth of a second, he's just nailing these, you know, with the animal AF and, and the internal stabilization, the IBIS that that camera has. It's, it's crazy. But I still don't know which way I'm going to go. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. think it's perfect. Sorry. That's why you just got to do it. What Mike or uh, what uh, Mike does? Yeah. The only thing he doesn't have yet is Nikon, right? No, I have a Nikon. Oh, you did the D500 and the. It's got the D500 and the two to five. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, you just get all the systems, and then you whatever comes up, you're ready. You know, you just grab what's coming up next. Yeah. Well, what are you going <laughs> to do, Jason? Forty-seven Pelican cases whenever you travel. Any. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem coming up. What, what's your thought yeah, you know, process? For me, my thought process is and we've talked about it on the show, but I did buy the Sony A7R4 and the two to six hundred, and it's been a great addition to my arsenal. But I haven't really dumped any of my Nikon gear. And I honestly don't plan on dumping my Nikon gear. Um, I think I'll continue to keep both systems for right now. I think from a mirrorless standpoint, Sony's got the advantage right now. And even with the R5 coming out, the IAF tracking and all that stuff is just as good from what I've heard on the A9 
too. Oh yeah, for sure. As it is on that R5. So you know, Sony's definitely the leader of the mirrorless game, right? Um, but this Canon camera on your wrong, it sounds amazing. I'm excited to hear, you know, what it has to offer. But yeah, that's my thoughts. Is just why not have both systems? Why not have if I, you know, because I can go out and grab a PF 500 if it makes sense for me for something like, you know, Mark's talking about on one of his trips and has that lightweight option. It's packable and you can still have the reach. Um, and I can do that if I have a Nikon body, you know what I mean? So I don't know. That's kind of my thought process process right now is just to kind of have both options available. And so much is changing and you can't just keep switching, right? I, I can't, I can't afford to just keep switching. So, <laughs> you know, my big question is like with the R5 is you can buy the adapter so you can put on an EF lens. So I would probably just use the 200 to 400, right? But is it going to be as fast and is that image stabilization really going to work when you got a big old heavy lens like that? I mean, I can't hold that sucker handheld and keep at 560 when I got the 1.4 engaged. You know, is that, I mean, if I can do it, if you can handhold that and get some steady video, like right on. But I just have serious doubts that, that it'll do that. I mean, anytime you involve an adapter, I have a friend across the street that shoots Sony and she kept all her Canon lenses, but it's not nearly as fast with the focus when you put an adapter in between the mix. Now, Canon has the advantage just because I'll be using a Canon lens with a Canon adapter and a Canon camera. Maybe that'll make it better. I'm hoping it will because I don't really want to go out and buy all these lenses because I'm not that jazzed about, you know, that's this is all predicated on not having looked at the lenses yet and maybe f11 if i shoot my red at f11 which i do a lot because i have to cheat on the focus because you're dealing with manual focus and i want as big an area as i can get on a moving animal it still looks really awesome i can still blow out the background at f11 on the red if you can do that with the with this maybe that f11 would be fine i don't know but i am a <laughs> The older Mark gets, since he just had a birthday, you know, the less weight we all want. <laughs> well, but no, hey, really time out real quick, too, because on the last podcast, uh, Mike, you had with uh, Matt. Was that his yeah, name, Matt right? Haig. Matt, and you guys were talking about it, and it's something that finally dawned on me. There's something that I just wasn't really liking about the Sony system, and a lot of it has to do with the look of the images and the feel of the images. And he mentioned it, and I actually need to look, do more research into this because I think there might be something in what he's saying about how on the, the DSLR, the mirrored bodies, you have a little more space between the sensor and the glass, and that helps with that aperture and that bokeh feel and the, and the, way, you're, you know, the way the image feels. And, boy, I just it just clicked with me. I had been looking for the words to put behind what I was having to struggle with on that Sony 2-6, to and now, in all fairness, I haven't shot a prime Sony lens yet, and I want to to see if I can, you know, if I get that feel. But I'm telling you, and I've said it a hundred times on the podcast, I just love shooting my Nikon with that prime 500 millimeter lens, and it, it's all about the feel that I get from that, the the way the images come out. So I don't know. There's something to that too, for whatever it's worth, Mark. That I think is worth considering if you're thinking about doing the mirrorless thing. You know, I agree with you 100. percent When he was saying that. It, that's when it clicked with me too. I didn't really yep. think about it. And I don't know, did you guys get exactly what we're talking about? In talking to a couple of people that have shot the R, 
the Canon R, they've done it with adapted glass. And the new adapter that has the uh, drop-in capability, so they've said that that's the big advantage is they once you get the the glass a little bit away from the sensor, so you use that adapter, which gives you like an extra inch away from the sensor, and then you can start to get some of that feel back. But, yeah, I've heard that from several people now. I mean, once you hear it once and you're – you know, it's a conversation that you're really in tune and listening to. Then you start to pick it up from other people and in other people's conversations. And and that was one of, you know, there are a lot of disadvantages to using an adapter, but that was one of the advantages. It's just kind of getting that, gaining that distance back, like just like you were saying, Jason. Well, that was a huge rabbit trail. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still tempted by that one to five, even at seven one. For big animals, if it's compact and is pulls it all off, That'd be pretty, still sweet at 7.1. If you're on a big moose or a caribou or two animals together, I want to be at 7.1 anyway. So mm -hmm. if it's a small kit, but like you were pointing out, Jason, I mean, what you get in post is so important. And, and something we've worked so hard at is what the images look like when they go out the door. For those in, you know, for those in, in, in pursuing this in a serious fashion that are really trying to manage light well and colors well and contrast all the elements of an image. I mean, it's important. So there may be some research required into these different cameras and sensors that way. I mean, I don't know how deep we'd have to dig to find out, but I would want to do that before investing and in switching a new setup. And I um, appreciate hearing your experience perspective too. Definitely. I mean, I love the 850, the colors, the sensor, the, what I get on the computers, what I like to see. I haven't shot the others to know. Well, I think uh, what Ron said is probably the best thing to do. Wait a month and then mm. rent. You know, I don't even sure. know if those, yeah, if these I cameras do. will show up in a rental house before, you know, within a month, that'd be great, but there's going to be a huge demand, I'm sure. But if you can just rent one and try it out, I mean, that's probably the best way to do it. And this is waiting game, too. I mean, if this stuff is actually coming down the pipeline with Nikon, that could be pretty exciting. But that's a whole season or year of shooting that has yeah, we have to that wait. Was, that was what they said, was it, it would be 2021, likely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and everything's been put on the back burner because of COVID, right? I mean, um, from a supply side, I mean, I'm hearing that there's there's lots of stuff out there in the system but they can't get components so you know even though they have the stuff out there to make the equipment they can't get the equipment and if you go looking for a new camera body new lens right now it, it's pretty it's pretty thin pickings right now so for sure i looked uh, ron and i were talking a couple of weeks ago in the 500 pf i was trying to get i mean it's one thing i've missed about the podcast is just being up to speed and having conversations about this stuff because you all do different research and i mean historically ron is is my go-to guy on on this stuff too just out of experience and when i mentioned the 500 pf he said he's heard great things but good luck getting one yeah so i looked into it and that week there weren't any anywhere but when things started to slowly open up there's obviously some distribution or production and i saw one available i didn't move on it obviously but who, who knows hopefully that will improve and obviously yeah. canon's got to have their game on if they're bringing the camera out at the end of this month or now right so yeah that's my big question too is because there's already a lot of demand for this camera. Everybody's been waiting for it and mm -hmm. we'll see if they can produce, you know, know with that right. kind of volume. Yeah. <laughs> well, hard, 
Harlan texts me every day, and he's like, I want my camera. I want my camera. You know, that new R5. He's got it. He's got it. He's on the list, and he's just, like, going yeah. nuts. He wants that thing so bad. So. <laughs> and that R5 mm-hmm. takes a whole another new card, too, right? Or is it? It takes a CF, CF Express and a, um, SD, what, UHS-2. But a CF it Express uses... is different than a CFast, right? It, yes, it is. And it's also, it's an XQD. It's basically in the XQD card body, but it's a, it's a different technology, which is much faster. It's like a thousand megabytes a second that it can write. Which would have to be the reason why it could shoot 8K. I mean, that's the whole, when exactly. the, before that camera came yeah. out, I'm like, there's just no way you're going to get a little itty bitty camera like that that can record 8k and not have it be compressed like crazy compression and just i mean i could see myself never even liking the footage but then you hear about it and it's like 8k raw 8k raw yeah so that means you have a little latitude in post-production and all of a sudden it's Mm -hmm. you know and you know everybody's saying oh yeah you only got 20 minutes of 8k but for what we do 20 minutes is fine i mean i i think i was talking with jason the other day I, there's no situation most most of the time in wildlife stuff that's going to last longer than 20 minutes. You know, the animal's yeah. either going to change locations and it's not going to be good. The light's going to change or something. Even, you know, some of the the bear fights that I've shot, they don't, they last a couple of minutes, right? So yeah. you're, you're not going to really, I mean, you, if you just manage the camera, right, or manage your time, right, or manage the situation, right, you should be just fine. But in the reality, well, how many people are going to shoot 8K though. and why do you need 8K? Right. How many people can edit 8K? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Have a fast enough computer to even edit it. And the only thing you you said that the other day, Michael, and uh, the only thing I could think of was you get lucky and you find an antelope that's about to give birth or a deer or an elk or bison, moose, whatever. And you may be sitting on that for a while. Yeah. But even then, you know, you're going to film the highlights. You're not going to film the whole you know, hour and a half scenario. Right. So yeah, it's, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right for us. It's, it's great. And that, you know, the 8k I could see using if you were going to crop. Um, but really I think the, the 4k option excited me more with the, with the 120. Right. And that's the same thing I have with the red, right? I have 8k mm-hmm. capabilities, but I very seldom shoot an 8k for two reasons. One is I can't play it on my computer, so I don't know. <laughs> you know, I have to look at it at one sixteenth resolution to actually just watch any. You know, to actually play it, and then at one sixteenth resolution, I can't tell if it's in focus or not. And then the mm-hmm. second thing is, is if on the red, if I go to four K, then all of a sudden I'm magnifying my lens, right? So I can go from a five hundred to an eight hundred. I don't even know what the numbers are. I'm just throwing that out there, but. If I'm shooting with my two to four and I go from 8K to 4K, all of a sudden I get that much more reach. So for wildlife, obviously we all want that. So I'm always shooting at 4K anyways, even on an 8K camera. So I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know that there's that much need. There will be. I'm sure the 8K TVs are probably already out. But as far as being out in for the masses, it's probably going to be a while. Well, and then... <laughs> And that isn't even the Black, best part. <laughs> Black Magic just came out with a 12K 
Cine Camera. Oh my heck. The Ursa Mini. Blackmagic Ursa Mini 12K capability. <sighs> and now right into that footage. I am <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. I am probably three generations of computers away from being able to edit that. <laughs> Which means if you're three, I'm like five. So. <laughs> Which means, well, I'll be eighty before yeah. before we get a we yeah. can afford a computer that's fast enough. I'll forget how to run a camera long before I'll be able to edit that footage. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. Is that all we wanted to do on that? That was pretty uh, thorough. Yeah, I think I think we thoroughly beat that horse. Yeah. The only thing I'll add, real quick, is I'm. This is a plea to Nikon, so I know all the Nikon, <laughs> you know, execs are listening to the podcast. So please give us the firmware upgrade on the 850, so we can use those CF Express cards, and then all oh, of a yeah. sudden we, we don't have any more buffer issues on that camera. But of course, I know we probably won't do that because that'll be with the D860. And you know a higher megapixel body and so on and so forth. So with that card, that's <laughs> that card would actually go in an 850 then, because it's the same. It's the same card as the XQD. It's just got different internal components, and it's. Uh, I think it's the same card that that um, the Canon 1DX Mark III. Oh, probably so. Uses probably so. Uh, has two slots. Mark, Mr. Raycroft. So while while Raycroft is out paddling his canoe in Algonquin, (laughs) he's he's missed this information. Shooting an 850, I've never really had buffer issues. Are you talking about when you're like shooting in 4K video that you've hit that threshold, or or is it just bursts of images when something exciting is happening that you've actually hit the buffer limit? Yeah, it's just in the burst of images. I've never had an issue from a 4K standpoint or video standpoint, but I did, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen very often, but it, when it, and it yeah. does recover pretty quick. It clears the buffer pretty good, but okay. you know, once in a while, it does. It's a little annoying. But. Sure, I haven't had that happen. So I, on my XQD card, I haven't been in the right place at the right time. So Jason, I want to go with you. We've talked <laughs> about this over the past couple of years. We haven't had the opportunity to meet up in the field yet, but maybe if I get to go with you, I'll get that. I'll have that experience, which would be a highlight. <laughs> well, if you're shooting with me, you'll just hear me doing it, and then you'll automatically do it. So, okay, okay, because sometimes I I get a little trigger happy, but shoot now, yeah. I hit it for the first time with video, uh, oh, it was like two weeks ago, it was up in um, Yellowstone or Grand Teton National Park, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my camera, wouldn't shut off, and I couldn't, when I would turn it back on, I couldn't get it to do anything else. And then I finally realized I've been filming in 4K for probably eight, ten minutes, and it was still writing to the to the card. So it it took forever for it to clear. But that was the first I'd I'd never hit it with stills. That was the first time that I hit it with um, video. But it took a long time, and I think yeah. Like Michael said, I, that's definitely why they're using that card. Is the only thing fast enough right now to write that much information to a to a memory card, and you only get one. The good news is you can buy you can buy a CF Express cards that are one terabyte yeah, of how memory. How much are those? I don't know. I don't know if we get sponsored by the right company, they're they're free, heavily discounted. <laughs> 
Well, that was the big drawback to red, right? Because you buy a 512 card that is proprietary red, and you're looking at 2,000 or I don't even know. It's, oh, it's in the thousands just for a, a card that was only 512. And it's proprietary. But now all these faster cards would probably work in the red, but they're not going to do that, right? They want to make their money on their cards. So, But the new red that came out, it's called the Komodo. It actually, I think, works on the C-Fast. It's either the C-Fast or the C, what is it called? C-Express? C-Express. C-F? C-F. C-F Express. Yeah. And that's the one advantage that I've seen that the, uh, well, and it, again, they haven't come out with the official announcement yet, but the... The Sony AS3 has an external recorder, so you can just use a SSD drive and record directly on an SSD drive with that camera, supposedly. You know, we'll know, I guess, next, I guess it's a week from when we're recording. So July 28th, they're supposed to come out with that announcement with all the all the specs, and so we'll know what that camera's going to be. But Okay, now I think we beat that horse. <laughs> Now, now it's gone. <laughs> you guys have to en encourage the audience to go. I mean, I'm just saying this today, and maybe I've missed this visual, but Ron is bringing his A game for the background for YouTube, <laughs> and and I need to get schooling from Mr. Hayes on how he does this, where he's positioned in front of his images. There's a bear that keeps whispering in his ear, sitting on his shoulder, nibbling on his earlobe. <laughs> it's it's ready for youtube this is this is yeah this is the show check it so out so what you have to do is you have to delay the beginning of the podcast for about 20 minutes <laughs> to figure it out <laughs> to be able to figure it out yeah so i was working on something pretty cool and i still haven't figured it all out but you know i was talking about this time lapse project that we were going to start and i was trying to design i don't know if we're going to have power at this location so i was in a conundrum because it's going to have to run off solar and it's got to run reliably. So I've spent the last week trying to build a solar powered time-lapse waterproof system. And uh, I'll have to give you a full on report next week, but there's all these little components and you can go buy this whole. Now this is all to work with like a GoPro. So I did a six month time-lapse project for a client a couple of years ago. And we actually did use some GoPros and then we used some Panasonic's and then we used some Canon we used everything. I even used some trail cameras because the trail cameras would actually, you could program them to like come on at 7 a.m. and go off at 7 p.m. and shoot whatever frequency you wanted throughout the day. Whereas most traditional camera systems, you don't have that ability. So back when we did that original project, it would record throughout the night. So can you imagine how many just black images we had to delete you know but we couldn't figure out how to program these cameras there was nothing out there really to program them at that point but there was one company called camdo and they are set up to basically just run the gopro a gopro 8 gopro 7 and 8 with this little add-on piece so that i can schedule it just like that but the big question is keeping constant power which is going to have to be done through solar because i don't know if this place that we're going to be shooting actually has power 
So I'll give you the full on rundown, but I'm th- I was, you know, I'm building it for a, a client or building the system to shoot for a client, which is a commercial project. But I got to thinking it'd be kind of cool to be able to set it up in some, I don't know, some remote location. You know, it's not something that you'd want to put in a highly visited area just because it probably wouldn't last very long. But, you know, if you did some backcountry hiking, I don't know, 10 miles out of the way and just found a cool spot where who knows what, you know, a big orange sheep might come out on the edge of a, of a cliff or something that you, you know. Algonquin. <laughs> Our friend John Timmer, didn't he master that in a sense with the, I don't want to give away any of his secrets here. Sorry, John, if it is, I hope it's not. But the idea of setting up a, a trail camera like that on a log over a river or something. Right. I've seen footage yeah. uh, from the eastern U.S. that went crazy viral on YouTube of like a year of this log. And you get all these amazing animal things crossing it, and it's just put together in, in a collage one after the other. Pretty amazing footage. So if you had a place like that, yeah, but it'd be uh, awesome. Want the metal housing locked to the tree because some of these animals, bears in particular, are quite curious. So you want it solid. But that'd be a fun wildlife application. But this sounds like the perfect project for you. And I want to say that's why that's why you deserve the big bucks. I mean, to design this stuff, all the gear is what you do. So. That's pretty cool. I, want, I look forward to hearing about well, it. Well, we'll see if I can hope, actually pull hope it, it off. Works. Well, that's what I'm saying. I hope it's slick. <laughs> well, the other one was years ago. That time lapse yeah. was, yeah. was awesome to watch. Yeah. So It was cool. But I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun because I do enjoy that kind of stuff. But then I was thinking, you know, and with wildlife, I think it'd be really cool with video, right? So then you'd have to incorporate some sort of motion sensor that would trigger trigger the camera on. And then it would have to go into video mode. And then I guess what right. record for two or three or four or five uh, minutes and then camera trap mode and yeah, yeah Ron Ron Niebuhr yeah Talk Ron, to Ron about that yep. he might know how to but actually that I think the video I was thinking about, it wasn't stills I think maybe I've seen both but there were video ones as well on this log kind of thing and some it's not the kind of footage that you're gonna run on BBC right. or National Geographic but it's certainly applicable for YouTube for these trail cameras and there are models now that you know you can you get lithium double a's eight of those are run during you know seasonable weather not middle of winter but will run for several months if not longer on one set of batteries and then there are also some cameras that i have not tested so i don't know how reliable they are they actually have a little solar panel on them that's supposed to last longer but again you wouldn't necessarily get the quality of commercial footage that you're targeting but as far as storytelling it would be good. Or viral video, right? Because I think the one yeah, thing that right. you were talking about, John Timmer actually had. Didn't he have mm-hmm. a mountain lion walking across that log that he yeah, was able to get? Mountain lion, yeah. yeah. Which is pretty Check him out on Instagram. Yeah. John yeah, Timmer. A lot of J-O- other stuff, but that mountain J-O-N. lion was so awesome. Sorry, Ron. Oh, no, that's okay. J-O-N. Yeah, J-O-N-T-I-M-M-E-R. Talented, talented photographer from the Pacific Northwest. That's cool. Future podcast on that. Hopefully. Right? Your setup. If it all works. Yeah. The air high five we get to yeah. do digitally here. And then, uh, so what else do you guys have? Because I have one more thing. Oh, I think, go ahead. I, I've got the log. Once you get it, once you get it done, I've got the, the log with this nice creek crossing. And <laughs> oh, once you figure it out, I've got the testing and spot. And it's remote? It's, yeah, it's private land. Nobody's ever going to be down there. No. All right. So I did a podcast last week with a 
a woman named Cheryl Opperman. She's a pro wildlife photographer here in Denver. And I just met up with her in, Nash- in Rocky Mountain National Park. And we needed a podcast. And I'd take my podcast stuff. And uh, I just said, hey, would you mind doing a podcast? And we did it. So that's the one that ran last week. So you all probably heard that. But in the course of that conversation, we got to talking about social media and all the images that get stolen on social media. Or, you know, I was referencing the bear video that I shot with the, the cone. And she said that she'd been thinking long and hard about this for a while because she doesn't put a lot of stuff on social media just because she doesn't want it stolen. And uh, she was thinking that it might be kind of cool to start our own hashtag that would be just ask the artist. And I thought that was kind of a cool idea. So, I mean, if everybody just asked the artist, put that hashtag in every post that you do, maybe we can have a little uh, movement where people that have a question might just ask first. I mean, a lot of times I would probably, if it's a reputable organization, for sure, I'm going to let them use an image, right? But some of the, you know, that bear thing was crazy. I mean, I lost control of that within the first 24 hours. And then it didn't do any good. So I don't know. We, what we decided we would do is she wrote up a whole description of what, what you can do with that hashtag. And we'll put it on our website. So wildandexposed.com slash just ask the artist. And then you can read this description of how, you know, just how to respect copyright and what copyright is and you know, that sort of thing. So I thought it was kind of an interesting idea and I think it's something that we should all at least talk about or promote or see if we can gain any traction. I think that's yeah, a great good. idea. I'll start doing that. It, I'm, well, Cheryl's a great lady. I had the privilege of meeting her uh, about 10 years ago in the middle of the remote Alaskan wilderness with Ron uh, Niebrugge and his wife and my son, Andrew. We spent a whole day with Caribou together and had a fun shoot. She's a very talented photographer. So, yeah, obviously, if you haven't listened to that podcast, go back to it and catch up on last week's, given the time frame of how this works. Mind warp here. We're talking, but it's not out yet, but it's out now. Really? (laughs) Okay. There we got that straight. (laughs) But, you know, it's the social media thing. It's That's one thing I was going to get into with you guys, but I don't think. I don't know, time probably doesn't warrant it today. Oh, yeah, we're going to do a two- or three-hour podcast here, so keep on going. <laughs> it's, it's uh, I, you know, the watermark's important, but then there's there's really that percentage of, of the social media world that doesn't even understand the relevance of it. And, and that when they repost, they crop it out anyway? Well, then that's, but then they do understand. You know, yeah. if, if they're doing that, then that's that's bad news. But there's so many that do it, even in my credit. But but, you know, even though it says like on my page, I mean, I, I enjoy sharing things with like minded people and social media is important f- nowadays for promotion. I, I heard on a podcast that you talented guys did not too long ago talking about how for most applications, websites are pretty well obsolete. I mean, I still get clients through websites. I still have orders through the websites, but really people, far more people find through social media. And I still don't post pictures myself on Facebook other than my travel pictures to have a placeholder there where people can find me because of what I understand of the public domain issues of Facebook. But I do on Instagram and they're watermarked. I don't want to talk too long about this myself here, but it's it's always... You know, you have to do it if you want to promote yourselves globally these days. And you have to accept a bit of that loss as far as 
image accountability. You hope it doesn't happen. It's always that oh, when you see it and then you see who did it and decide, you know, based for me, based on the page, is it an automatic block? Is it a direct message saying, explaining nicely? And you know, this past week, there were two or three that reposted. I sent a direct message and they were super nice about it. They replied saying, didn't, didn't realize that. So sorry, respect what you do. And they took it down right away. Now I'm following them. And, you know, it, it, there's, there's a relationship there because of how well they respected it and handled it. I'm also still making money off of more and more people using them without permission on a corporate level and as an artist reference level. For those that are selling art professionally and, you know, if it's a piece that's selling for several hundreds or even four or five thousand dollars and it's from an image then there's a bill to be paid that's still happening so it's it's a weird frustrating source of income and and thankfully they they all i mean all of those in north america accept what they've done and respect the original source of the art and then some of them keep working together right but it's it's a stressor I hate doing that. I hate having that conflict. You know, we all work hard at this. You guys are all talented at creating what you do. And if some people use it, so that's a great idea to add a new hashtag that links into some kind of information that way as well. But anyway, sorry. There's, there's lots to talk about on Instagram. The other thing I don't understand is a whole other subject. And Ron's like, here he goes. <laughs> you guys sure you want me to be on the podcast here with you? <laughs> Is, is the whole difference of these sites reposting. Now, I've had some people repost and they've got a million, million followers. And all, that's a big boost. It's great. They've given credit. It's good. But then you have another site that repost, a new page that they've been up for a week. They put up 40 pictures in the past day. They grabbed one of yours and put it up. And I still see people, photographers that I respect and some that I even love, these people thanking them for it. And I know I, it's, it's an old can of worms here, Michael, but for me, it's like I work hard at what I do. I ask for permission to repost, and I, I hope that that's done out of respect for, for the art that we all do, the work that we do, the money we spend on these trips, the sweat, the blood, the – well, not the blood. Nobody has – sorry. That was, <laughs> that's too far. <laughs> Oh, your your microphone's on, Ron. Yeah, probably better what you're saying. There's been blood. You remember I was wedged between two rocks (laughs) when we were photographing doll sheep. (laughs) A tiny little bit. Yeah. (laughs) That was worth it, though. That was was a no pain, no gain moment. I've looked at a couple pages lately that kind of like what you're talking about. New pages are trying to gain traction. So they're just nabbing pictures from the, the best ones that they can find. And I think, honestly, I think it's the same group of people. And they they get shut down on one, and then they just turn right around and start another one, do the same thing. As soon as somebody turns them in, they get shut down again, and it's just one after another. But... I think some people believe in the philosophy that being such an open social media platform that the more places their works reposted, irrelevant of if anybody's going to see it on these new pages, it's it's a way to grow. And so they express gratitude. And maybe I'm just too old school, but, you know, I, I don't mind if somebody asks and it's a suitable application, then that's okay. But I'm also working with all kinds of clients and I just don't need it 
going everywhere out there. And that causes me to have some, like Charles, you know, some reluctancy to put up a tremendous amount of images or my uh, my favorite images. There's some holding back at times because of that concern. So, so what's, so Mark, one thing you can do, and I know you know this, is you can make your page private. But then how do I know find you, right? I, I, well, I get it, right? So then they get yeah. it from references and other people, and that makes it much more difficult for people to find your page for sure. Yeah. That's um, but that is a way to control that. Um, right. It's, yeah. But you're right. They don't have a good solution. I mean, and I, I block people. I block somebody every every few days. I block somebody that's okay. just out grabbing a picture from me. Right. You know, yeah. if they ha and, I, and I do the same tact you have. I try to approach them. If they're good about it, then, you know, they apologize. They take it down. They fix it, whatever. We're all good. You know, a lot of times I end up following them, like you said, same thing. becomes mm -hmm. a mutual benefit, a beneficially mutual relationship. But a lot of them, they just don't even care. And I think it's like Ron said, they're just out there nabbing stuff, and they're hoping for something to stick. And I just block them. You know, I don't even waste my time. But you're right. I mean, it's just a risk you take, and I don't know if there is an answer. You know, I haven't come up with a good one. But low res watermark, you know, yeah, it's got to be yeah. small files. I mean, I think I'm down to most of them under 200 kilobytes, and mm. just that's manage it, right? Yeah. And, but yeah. It, and and like anything in the profession, I mean, I, I for me, I summarize it that I feel extremely blessed and grateful for what I do. And that's a small negative part that I wouldn't, I don't want to spend much time focusing on because of, we're all privileged with our lifestyles and what, and what we get to experience in the wilderness and, and to get paid to do that on any level is, is pretty cool. So I'm yeah. grateful and, and it, but yeah, social media, I, I, it's repetitive. I don't want to say it, but I, I know we've talked about this over the years, you know, when I started no, I can't. I can't say. Yeah. I got into this profession. My the guy who was mentoring me, I didn't want to send out my best images. They were on a format that I'm not allowed to mention. And he said, e either you're in this profession or you're not. You can, and it's, I think now social media is that way. There's enough positive connectivity. There's some amazing people out there. I've met so many photographers or photography enthusiasts through social media and clients that it's it's a vital tool it's it doesn't generate as much revenue as i had dreamt of yet and i did a, my first test like a week ago where i put up an image thanks to harlan's great idea of oh yeah best photo wildlife photo hashtag i'd have to look it up but it was a great idea and, and caught on like wildfire and so i put up a good image and i saw some of the previous posts were making it kind of a spin promotion so i'm like all right i'm going to throw this out there and say this image is available on these two sizes of canvas and these two sizes of metal and let's see what happens and it wasn't as fruitful as i had hoped it would be yeah. but then that's a whole other conversation i don't know about you jason you have you have an amazing and warranted following on instagram and what i've noticed you know if you were to look at my page 10,000 followers ago I'm not getting any more likes per image than I did then. Mm. And yeah. the math doesn't add up. How can I have, you know, one year I can have 10,000 followers and I'm getting 2,500 likes an image. Mm. And a couple of years later, I have 30,000 followers and I'm still getting 2,500 likes an image. Yep. It's like, it, well, the, the short, an 
the short answer is the IG Instagram algorithm continues to change. It does. That's right. Uh, yeah. So that's the bottom line. There's nothing. I mean, I'm, and not that it matters, not to even throw numbers around, but I'm I'm close to sixty thousand followers now, and my likes are around two to three thousand per image, and it's just you can almost just count on it. You know, it doesn't seem to matter what kind of image it is. Doesn't mean seem to matter if it's a good or a bad image. Just is going to get about two or three thousand likes. So, mm-hmm. I and I just don't even worry about it. I just don't sweat it. I don't care. I'm not. I'm doing my thing. It frustrates me because I'd like it to reach the folks that I would think are following me because they want to see my work. Right. But beyond that, I don't know what to do. You know. And no, I and I'm playing. I'm I'm playing Instagram's game. Right. It's their platform. You know. It's not costing me anything. <laughs> I try to look at all the, you know, the yeah, the no, positives that's, that's that right. Guess, well, I even I tried a promotion last week too. I did pay for a yeah. six day promotion just to see what that would do. Be, you know, I enjoy it. I enjoy Instagram. I love seeing all of your work and so many people from across the planet. So much inspiration out there. I love seeing some of the whale photography and videos. It's just so much visual eye candy that's not that should even be more flattering than that just no it's a great platform so i do enjoy it it's just from a mathematical mind some of it i stall out and wonder about that way but it's it's still to me uh, worth doing financially the other thing is clients find and then for those that are interested to do photo workshops and tours it's it's a great way to market that kind of stuff as well. But I think if we do this hashtag, it might help with some of the education, you know, sure. yeah. of just great. hey, you know, we spend a lot of money, time, and effort to get these images. Just don't steal them. You know, you can ask, and you know, most of the time, if so somebody asks it- me, I'm going to let them as long as they give me a photo credit. Yeah, you know, I I gained a ton of followers just by putting up that viral video of that cone the bear in that cone so and i still get them to i don't know when i put that up probably a couple months ago but i still get followers every day just off of that one video and i can't tell you how many times my mom has reposted it she didn't even know where it came from <laughs> I, uh, it, well, i've seen it everywhere and i love it and i i saw a bunch with your watermark so i was like great and then i see them without the watermark yeah. and i'm like oh no yeah who how took the time happen? to go take the watermark out yeah. yeah, crop yeah. into a 720p video to just to get rid of the watermark yeah. so you can say it's yours. Yeah, it was crazy. And then I've seen it allocated for every area in North America where grizzlies exist. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I have people commenting all the time. They're like, no, that's not a grizzly bear. That's a black bear. Mm-hmm. Oh. I get a lot of that, too. That was all probably right. my mother. <laughs> I think viral video gets you lots of uh exposure to you know so the more we all talk about these cameras that can shoot video and the more we're out there and man if these cameras are small enough and they're light enough and they're steady you don't need a gimbal anymore to get steady footage i mean what are the chances of getting really stellar wildlife viral moments yeah those ladies that just got molested by the black bear they're all over the place even the aussie man so all you have to do is stand there and let a black bear come bite you on the thigh well, yeah. here's the here's the lesson on that that I learned through putting up the bear and the cone. Don't put it up. There's 10 or 12 or 20 companies out there, and I've got all their contact info now because they all reached out and wanted to license my footage. 
I think the smartest way to do that is don't put it out. Just license it. If you're trying to, if mm-hmm. you've got some viral moment, don't even do mm-hmm. it because you will lose control so fast that by the time they come knocking on your door, it's not valuable to them anymore. So that was my lesson, right? That went viral. Then all these companies call me and they, we want to license that video. And I'm like, okay, what the heck? Let's try it. You know how much money I've made off of that? No. Zero. Don't say Zero. Really? But I think it just went too crazy too fast, and then it just appeared everywhere. I think part of mm-hmm. it is the COVID thing, too. And they've sent out emails saying, you know, our sales are way down just because of the, the economy at the moment. But that's, that's what I would do. If I got some sort of viral video, I'd just contact one of these media organizations where they're selling it for Fox News or BBC or whoever wants to buy it just to gain exposure for their their page. So for our listeners, how would they? Yeah. No, go ahead, Mark. Jason, uh, just how would they find that? What would you Google search to find somebody or to be able to review who would purchase this? I don't know. I guess I could put up a couple of, I could go back through mine and just see which ones inquired with I, and it's amazing how they found me. I don't know. I mean, they were finding all my email address. I got them emails from all kinds of different email addresses. And so I could throw up a couple and just put it out there. And, and they want to, they're constantly looking for that latest and greatest. I mean, I'm sure if these people that with the bear thing you're talking about, Ron, where those three gals were standing there, if they'd have done that, cause I've seen it 50 times already. Yeah. Yeah, Ozzy mm-hmm. Ozzy Man even did a review on it, oh. <laughs> and it's worth it's worth finding. I bet that I might, <laughs> might have to listen to that. I one. bet that's a funny <laughs> one. That would be a good one. All right. So, anything else we got? Well, I think that's a. Oh, I go think, ahead, Jay. Well, I just think that's a great pro. T- just to sneak in, that's a great pro tip for our, our our listeners. You know, because how many times do you just get so excited and you got this cool video and you just throw it up and oh look what I got look what I got world. And you may have just missed a huge opportunity right. to, to cash in on something. Right. So I know. I'm kind of holding back the top 10 bison flips <laughs> that I've uh, been able to capture over the years. But You know, there's one account yeah. that I'm not going to say the name of, but I think we all follow. And they just had a clip on today. And it was the classic Hollywood horror thing where a bison is running after these two people. And what happens to the person behind? They trip and fall. It was just so classic. It's like exactly what's supposed to happen in Hollywood, and it happened in real life. And this bison goes right up to this person, and I think it was a she. You know, you're looking at such a small screen, it's hard to tell, but she had to have needed diapers because this bison is just standing right over. You're just looking right at I mean, and it was just so funny. (laughs) Two people are running. One of them, of course, falls, and then that bison is just right there on it. It was so amazing. And for the sake of our of the listeners going to sleep tonight, she survived. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, the bison okay. never touched her, which was interesting. Okay. But I'm sure she's just like, like you said, needed diapers, and then it messed around for probably ten, fifteen, twenty terrifying seconds, and then it just kind of ran off. And then that the person that was ahead of her that didn't fall ran back and grabbed this person, and you know probably had to carry him off the field. <laughs> So I think I sent it to you guys. I'll find it. I sent it to somebody, so I'll send it to you guys. I'm sure you saw it, though. Well, I think that is a great place to call it for tonight. Hold on. We got one more. We got to talk about our part-time co-host. 
I was getting oh. there. I thought you were just signing oh. us out. He just stole his thunder. Sorry. I forget that Ron is so witty and that he's got this all under control. Jeez, give a guy a chance to fail before you shut him down. Before we do, we'd like to welcome Mark Raycroft back to the Wild and Exposed podcast. We once again have a north of the border influence, um, and Mark, you've been you've been missed, except for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but you have been missed, and and we're happy that you can be back in in whatever capacity that brings us all together. In uh, miss those times in the field. Look forward to more and. Yep, virtual hug. Yeah, hug it out, great. baby. It's a it's a treat to see your faces, and and it's a lot of fun to communicate with all three of you, and and I'm I'm excited and and look forward. Like, we'll go over one more time. You only die once, but you live every day. That's I want right. to live every day. I want to plan for adventures, and I'd love to do more and more adventures with you guys, and storytelling linked to that, and and meeting like we have over the, the two years I was involved, amazing guests from across the planet hearing their stories. And like I said, I've been listening this spring, and, and you guys have it, it's been an A game all the way through. So I'm, I'm grateful to, to, be, to be back on with you and, and enjoyed everything you guys have been up to. And it's just great to see your faces, and I look forward to it. I know. Once I, I mean, you would know this now. I don't. I don't know it yet. But once a guy turns sixty, you start to reflect a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm nowhere near that age, so it's all full steam ahead. And hopefully, with this smidgen of, of wisdom to it. But otherwise, yeah, no, it's still, still a young whippersnapper. All right, Mark, give us one of those. You've been listening to Wild and Exposed. We haven't had one of those for no, you seven, guys... seven months now. You've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way